everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, another busy day of soccer, three games today. Yeah, it kind of flew by, though. I feel like those games all had a lot of things to talk about, so it felt like they were... Kept my attention. That's good. I'm glad. I'm glad Major League Soccer is keeping your attention, Jordan. So we started in the morning with Atlanta United and FC Cincinnati. Then we moved as the first night game into Toronto FC versus the Montreal Impact. And then the nightcap, the late nightcap, was the Columbus Crew versus the New York Red Bulls. Let's start at the top. Let's start with the morning game. FC Cincinnati's 1-0 win over Atlanta United. What? Yeah. I think that's it. I still am like, what? After that game, I was just tr- trying so hard to figure out how that happened. I want to start with FC Cincinnati here and talk about one tweak that they made from last game. In their last game against the crew, I talked about and we both talked about how they had that sort of man-oriented marking, especially in midfield, but it looked like in a lot of positions across the field. Mm-hmm. That changed for this game against Atlanta. For, to, my, to my eye, at least, they were in a 4-4-2 zonal block with that flat four in midfield blocking off or trying to block off angles into Atlanta United's attacking players instead of going man for man all over the field. So that was a change into something more normal, a little less of a wild tactic. And I think it paid off in this game because they were able to limit Atlanta, even with that, you know, 10 men for Atlanta. Yeah, I actually I mean, I definitely think that Cincinnati played a different way. I actually thought they were playing in like a five back with so like a five three two block. They probably were shifting back and forth and it really just depended at what point in the game it was because there were, I guess, maybe some instances where they came out of their shell a little bit. Um they were few and far between, especially when we break down that they were up a goal or up a man for <laughs> a majority of this game. It just it, it was crazy to me that they didn't break out of that more often. They didn't venture into the attack a whole lot, even after Mulraney went down with that second yellow card midway through the first half, and that left Atlanta United with 10 men. But Cincinnati did do enough to get that goal in the second half. It's Frankie Amaya in the 76th minute, receiving the ball between the lines, turning, shooting with his weak foot, that's his left foot, from outside the box to give Cincinnati a 1-0 lead over Atlanta United. What's funny is when Cincinnati got the ball in this possession before the goal, I actually was typing down... You're a man up. There's 15 minutes left. I wrote, you have to pass the ball faster. And this was my, this actually was my beef with both teams is I know that it's hot. I know that there were elements and we heard Frank DeBoer talk about afterwards, how this is a really challenging game to play in. I get it, but it's not challenging to pass the ball faster. And if you pass the ball faster and you have the ball, well, the other team's going to get worn out a little bit more. And I just think that lack of pace in the way that they were playing the ball slowed an already slow game down. And it gave teams an opportunity to jump the passing lanes and steal the ball and for Atlanta try to create some stuff going forward. I do want to credit Cincinnati again for that defensive shift that made them much more solid in the midfield and for Frankie Amaya being on this team. I guess I had Mm -hmm. written down Frankie Amaya's name even before he scored the goal. And this was well into the first half, not the second half. Frankie Amaya is a bright spot on the Cincinnati team, and he is allowed to do some good things in the attack that did get Cincinnati on the board. But flipping it over to Atlanta, Jordan, what is wrong with Atlanta United? I don't know. And actually, this is a a good 
uh, segue because on that goal, there were five Atlanta players and two FC Cincinnati players in in that area of the field where Amaya scored. And so if you look at that, why why would he score there? There are so many players and so many numbers around the ball that really shouldn't be happening. Um, Atlanta, to me, it seems like they don't believe in what they're trying to do. Do they? I mean, do they look like they ha- they're a team that looks like, oh, this is how we're going to play? I think they just haven't figured out yet. It's not that they don't believe in who they can be. It's what they're trying to execute doesn't feel like it fits with who they have on the field. So I've been thinking about this all day, and that okay. does make me a nerd, and I accept that. But I've been thinking about this since the morning game, you know, however many hours ago that was now. And I just keep circling back to two things. Number one is exactly what you just said, and you summed it up better than I could have expressed it. But it's the the change of style of play that, that Atlanta United has undergone since Tata Martino has gone and Frank DeBoer has come in into playing this more patient possession style where they're going to work it around and not just run forward as fast as they can with Tito Vialba and Miguel Miron and Joseph Martinez. That has changed. That's one piece of this puzzle. And I think the players, a lot of them are still trying to wrap their heads around that. The other thing I'm thinking about and have been thinking about is Atlanta United has gotten worse talent-wise on the field at so many spots, whether by injury with Joseph Martinez being out of the lineup or by people leaving for transfers or them being sold on. I mean, even just take the right wing back spot for an example. I think Brooks Lennon is a is a very good player, a very good player at a lot of things. Julian Gressel, I would say, is a half step up, right? Then you look in midfield and it's Emerson Hindman versus Darlington Nagby, who we'll talk about who we'll talk about later with the Columbus Crews game against the Red Bulls. I mean, you could go through a number of these spots. Miguel Miron, gone. And you have Pitti Martinez, a very different player. But the idea here, I think, yeah. is valid that they have downgraded slowly and and incrementally at a number of different positions all over the field. Well, you said downgraded, but you also said Pitti Martinez is a different player than Al Marone, so you can't expect to be playing the same way or trying to fit that same mold of who Atlanta is when they don't have the same, even they might have the same pieces, but those pieces look different and they have different skill sets. So yeah, it doesn't seem like they've been able to figure out what it is. I want to see a different, maybe a different structure from them, a different formation. Uh, can they just go to a 4-3-3 and see if they can use their outside backs as playmakers in that sense, right? I, I don't, I think maybe taking the complication level of what they can do and bringing it down a notch and saying, okay, let's just execute. That's a good place to start, is with that execution and maybe simplifying things a little bit and going back to basics. Atlanta United have a real problem on their hands, and they're not going to fix it in this MLS's back tournament. This is going to be something that needs to be addressed throughout the future, hopefully if we get some more regular season games or next season or whatever that looks like. But yeah, I'm glad personally that I'm not Frank DeBoer. Yeah, me too. All right, on to the next game of today. This is another seven-goal game. Are you kidding? That's two in the last two days. We had San Jose and Vancouver yesterday, and today was the Montreal Impact Toronto FC TFC winning four to three in this game. Goals everywhere, Jordan. Yeah, there were a ton of goals. Are we going to go over every specific goal? No, I don't think so. Let's just give a a little bit of credit first off the bat to Ayo Akinola. Hat trick. He had two goals against DC United. He's scoring left and right. I'm not going to say it's easy to score because it's not easy to score. You tell me that all the time. Scoring is hard. (laughs) But when you have players around you like 
Pozuelo, like Piatti, like Larea. I think these are players who all can get forward and create things and are dangerous themselves, so open up space for you. And Akinola is like much of an unknown, right? And so all of the attention are gonna, is going to go to those other players. And he's just been like, all right. Let it go there. I'll just, I'll just scoop up the goals. Um, no, but he is, he's a quality, quality player and really intelligent in his running as well. Yeah. Strong on the, strong on and off the ball in his movement, able to body defenders out of the way. He did that on his last goal in this game. You mentioned the guy that I really want to talk about for Toronto okay. FC and, and that's Alejandro Pozuelo. I think Pozuelo played a formative role in a number of goals in this game, but especially on Toronto FC's second goal. Yep. Let's go through that. Okay, I love how we're thinking on the same wavelength and we have not talked about this at all. So in the buildup to Toronto FC's second goal, this is still in the first half. It's one to one at this point in TFC or in possession against Montreal's 5-3-2 block. Sometimes it looked like a 5-2-3 semantics. Uh Michael Bradley plays the ball out wide to Aro at right back. Montreal's left wing back goes and steps to Aro. Pozuelo then is in that right channel and he makes a hard run towards the ball. Not necessarily to receive the ball but to drag Montreal's left center back out of position. That run from Pozuelo creates space for Piatti to run in behind the back line, play the ball back to Pozuelo, who then crosses it for a tap-in for Akinola. That run from Pozuelo unlocked this entire play. It was such an intelligent run, and you get to see a little glimpse at these two players and how they think ahead of the play, because Pozuelo knew that if he did that, Piatti would have more space. And then Piatti knew, because he received the ball, he knew exactly where Pozuelo was. So then when he does his little inside-outside with his left foot to still the defender, he just plays the ball with the inside of his left boot, into space and Pozuelo is not even close at that time but he knows that that run from Pozuelo is coming and the the texture of the ball into the far post by Pozuelo is I just can't understate <laughs> the beauty of that this is what I'm saying if you're Akinola that is like a piece of cake that's money right there it is a piece of cake. You are making the run. You know that these guys think and they basically can put it wherever. Um, and that was the only place that he could have put it where he would have where Akinola would have scored. And it was just, yeah, I really liked that goal. Alejandro Pozuelo is one of the best attacking midfielders in Major League Soccer, not just for what he does on the ball between the lines and that, but also for how he moves off the ball and understands how to create and manipulate space. Were you noticing that because of how Montreal plays in that three or that five, three, two block, there's so many numbers back there, mm-hmm. right? And there's so many numbers where Pozuelo wants to connect. He almost started playing as like a deep line midfielder where he was in the back line picking up the ball like we see Beckerman do where he pops out to the wing and becomes like a third center back. He was doing that because he was like, I just need to, I need to get on the ball. I need to draw them out and try to pull some players out of the space where then I want to go into, you know, it's not always about getting the ball into this, in the space that you want. It's about manipulating the space where you want to eventually attack. And sometimes that means not occupying that space for a little bit of time. Toronto FC won this game four to three. But Montreal still did some interesting things with the ball. Jordan, you texted me during this game with a specific observation about what Montreal was doing in possession. Can you go through that for everybody? Yeah, I felt like Montreal 
I started to notice Montreal and how they were setting up, not defensively, but also when they were anticipating that they could potentially start a counterattack. Now, that's a lot of what ifs, right? That's a lot of ifs, yeah. A lot of what ifs. But what they would do is they would bring Romelo Kyoto to Omar Gonzalez's side, and he would just post up there. So Kyoto always on Gonzalez, and they noticed there was a weakness there. And where did the two goals come from in, in the first half, Joe? Romel Kyoto versus Omar Gonzalez. Oh my gosh, he had him in his back pocket the whole entire time. That first ball uh, from the back line, I think it was... Um, it's the Maciel? number six. It's Maciel, yeah. Yeah, Maciel recognizes that there is this one-on-one opportunity. And if you watch Kyoto, he checks a little bit towards Maciel, and then he button hooks his run outside. This is key because it gets uh, it gets Gonzalez hips to turn to the outside. But then what happens next is as Kyoto's run comes back inside towards the center of the goal, the ball from Maciel is hit with the inside of his boot. So it's curving away from the run of Maciel. No, normally, this isn't what you want to do, Joe. But because Omar Gonzalez's body positioning, that was the right texture on the ball because Gonzalez couldn't turn his body as fast as Kyoto could run straight ahead. So it was absolutely the right call. It took Gonzalez out of the play, and Kyoto was then able to be in this 1v1 situation. I just watched that that ball and how, the texture on it and how it was played through with such good spin. Um, it's a small thing that can make a huge difference. And then the same thing with the second goal. It was a 1v1 situation, Kyoto against Gonzalez, and uh, it just seemed to dominate him. Yeah, Chris Mavinga had to come over and help in that situation for the second goal and ended up bringing Kyoto down in the box after he moved past Gonzalez to earn that penalty kick for Tidare later in the first half. A really smart tactical thing from Thierry Henry. That's clearly something that they worked on or they identified that matchup pregame or during the run-up to this game. Mm-hmm. And that that deserves some praise because it worked. And, it, and it, even if it hadn't resulted in goals, it still would have been a dangerous thing for Montreal. Yeah, when we watched Montreal play at the beginning of the year and even in these first two games, you know that they are always eager to transition from defense to offense, right? They're really good at that transition. And so when I say like they posted Kyoto up because maybe when they might get an, a counterattack, well, maybe and might happen every once in a while and it doesn't have to ha- happen all the time but when it works they are opportunistic and they know we are going to finish this and i think it was a really good example of what this um impact team can do and ha- how much faith they have in their system one more thing that i want to get on joe before we go to the nightcap i guess we can call it morning <laughs> morning wake up nightcap is the distribution on the last goal from Toronto's goalkeeper, Westberg, uh, he pings a ball out and it starts a counter and Toronto ends up scoring. I got to know, was this better or the same as that assist we saw from David Bingham to Pavone in back in week one against Houston? Oh, man, you're dialing it all the way back to that pass from Bingham. Well, it was so similar. It was very similar. In my heart, it's still the Bingham pass because I was okay. just so shocked in that moment this MLS is back tournament. Nothing can shock me at this point. Oh, Westbrook my gosh. Could, Westbrook right? could have booted it into the top right corner and I would have not blinked. 
So a slight edge to David Bingham for that okay. pass out to Christian Pavone. I'll give Houston, it to you. But a great question. I love that. I'll give it to you. All right. So we've gone through FC Cincinnati's 1-0 win over Atlanta, Toronto FC's 4-3 win over Montreal. And now we've got another team from Ohio winning against the New York Red Bulls. That's the Columbus Crew's 2-0 win over Chris Armas' team. Jordan, two very different styles of play in this game. The crew wanting to keep the ball, the Red Bulls largely playing against the ball and trying to make the ball-possessing team's life miserable. A really almost diametrically opposed matchup here. You're absolutely correct when you say that. And it looked that way from the opening. If you looked at the opening six minutes, well, it was New York Red Bulls on top of the game, making life miserable for the Columbus crew. And then that was for about three minutes. And then the next three minutes, it was like, okay, the crew were going to try to play. And then after that, it was like, what's going to happen next? Because we've seen some wild things in this MLS's back tournament, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. One of the things I want to mention with, I'll start with the Columbus crew. You know what you're going to get from Chris Armas's New York Red Bulls team, and they're going to be high pressure. They're going to try to press your counterattacks. And so I think people get baited into just playing long balls out of the high pressure. Well, their center backs and their back line are really good at winning those first and second balls off of the long balls, right? So what I noticed from the Columbus crew is their willingness to play out of the high pressure. And it's risk-reward, right? Because they're a little toe poke, and we saw this right at the beginning of the game, a little toe poke in playing out in a passing lane. Well, Red Bulls have their two midfielders and then their four up front who can get after you really quickly. It didn't amount to anything for them in this game, but it does. It pays off for them. The margins are so small there when you're playing against that sort of pressure. The margins are so small. But what happens is when teams start to high press you, a lot of the times it's one pass or one dribble out of that high pressure through a spin turn. We see a lot when teams are high pressing because someone's flying at you. It's hard to control and slow yourself down while someone is then spinning out, right? That's a really hard movement to control. Or just that one little pass to then find Zardes up front. It really opened it up for the Columbus crew. They were finding Darlington Nagby or they were finding Chris Cadden on the right side of out, the right outside back who that one little pass from the Columbus crew from their back line to those two players then opened up the passing lane to Zardes and Celerion was just sitting in trying to get the pass off of Zardes. So it was this nice little like combination play through the high pressure that I think really allowed the Columbus crew to gain dominant control of the game early on. And they used that control ultimately to get them on the board. That's yeah. a 2-0 win. Zardes with the goal in the 22nd minute and Lucas Celerion with the goal in the 47th minute. Jordan, talk me through these goals. What have I been talking about a lot is little moments, right? Like throw-ins. Throw-ins. Yep. We've talked plenty about those over the last couple of days. Both goals today, Joe, for the Columbus crew came off throw-ins. That's what we like. That's what we like. So one of the things um, when teams are high pressing too and coming at trying to close the space on the wings, a lot of the times wingers have an opportunity to dribble centrally in like a 4-3-3 formation. So when you dribble centrally, different 
passing lanes open up. And it's exactly what we saw on this first goal by the Columbus crew. Chris Cadden had the throw in on the right side and Santos is living in that half space that he just loves to occupy. And he checks to the ball and receives the ball in a little bit of space just beyond the holding mid for the New York Red Bulls. Well, because he's just beyond the holding mid, that engages the center back and Tarek to come step to him. And as Tarek comes to step, Santos dribbles centrally. And because Tarek had stepped to Santos, well, the gap in between the two center backs just opens up like it parted like the Red Sea. And here's <laughs> Jassy's artist standing in the middle of there, ready and eager to receive the no look pass from Santos and score the first goal for the Columbus crew. So it was a really good buildup. And it all came off that recognition from Santos that dribbling centrally is a key way that he could have opened up the field right then. I love that theme that we've had almost woven throughout this episode of of these attacking players manipulating the defensive line and pulling players out and creating spaces for their attacking teammates to run into. That's such a key of attacking in general. And seeing these teams actually take advantage of that and move defenders around is beautiful. Jordan, that's the first goal. The second goal is a lovely shot from Lucas Elrayon from outside the box after he's he's made sort of this late arriving run to put himself in space after the Red Bulls back line has dropped. Well, that's exactly right. And that's one of the things that I think is underrated in this whole entire play. People are going to say the shot was spectacular. The buildup from the throw in was spectacular. It was almost like a up back and through head ball. It was everything was headers. It was it was crazy. And the work by Etienne here to just continue his run and run through the center back was brilliant. But Celerion did a really good job of as Etienne is pushing the back line and dribbling at pace, Celerion let the gap between where he was running and the back line which was dropping of the Red Bulls open up. So then when Etienne did decide to cut it back, which he does a lot, he cuts it back and the space that Zellerion created now allows Etienne to have a little bit of leeway in where his pass goes because it doesn't have to be perfect. Zellerion is, yeah, he's still running at pace, but even if the pass isn't perfect, it was enough space that he could adjust his steps a little bit to make sure his shot was perfect and his shot was perfect as it has been a lot, and it, it was a brilliant goal by the Columbus crew. We've gone through the crew and their two goals from this game. What did we learn? What do we know about the Red Bulls that we maybe didn't know before or that's been reinforced from this game? The question I have about the Red Bulls, and I'm not sure yet, because from this game, I couldn't tell what what the answer was. When you're this high-press, high-dominant, counter-press team, and that's what you rely on when you don't rely on the ball. What happens when you go down goals early in a game and you have to adapt how you're playing? I don't know. I, I don't really feel like they showed us who they are when things aren't working. I wrote a piece last season about the Red Bulls sort of advocating for them to become a little bit more ball oriented. And I don't know if I agree with that now, to be honest with you. I don't know okay. how I feel about that. But I keep coming back to that idea of of what could the Red Bulls be if they somehow added dangerous possession work to their high-powered, quick offensive transition work and their defensive mobility and their their desire largely to play without the ball. Mm -hmm. I wonder – this doesn't keep me up at night, but I wonder what would happen if the Red <laughs> well, Bulls could – Well, it does could, right now. It's it does right, it does right now. <laughs> I wonder what would happen if the Red Bulls could 
could add that little dimension in there if that would completely wreck the rest of their system and, and take the emphasis away from the defensive pressure, or if that would allow them to contribute and really come back in games like this where the crew later on in this game are content to sit without the ball. They're up to nothing, right? Yeah. Let the Red Bulls have possession. They're not going to do anything with it. That's the Columbus outlook, at least. They're not scared of the Red Bulls with the ball. Yeah. So that's the only thing that I keep coming back to other than making the press more dominant and making the defensive block even tighter. And at some point, there's got to be a limit for those things, right? Yeah, that's a good point. What if they could just switch back and forth? How difficult would that be if you played a team who could just like... Last point I want to make with this game before I wrap up is the thing that really unlocks this equation for Columbus against New York Red Bulls is Darlington Nagby. Of course it was. There were moments in the game, and there's moments in a lot of games, but it's it's more recognizable, I think, in these games when there's such a high-intensity press. He will receive the ball. He'll call for the ball when he is under so much pressure. And it's like... You can't touch me. Like, he is so good under pressure. If I was a midfielder, I've been that midfielder. And I would just be like, don't play it to me. Don't play it to me. Waving my hands. And he's like, come on, give it to me. I want it. Um, he's so good. And he really s- did some great work in there tonight, um, per usual. An ode to Darlington Nagby, an analysis of all three games from today's MLS's back action. Jordan, we did it, and we'll be bringing more tomorrow. Tomorrow. We'll be right back here. We hope you guys will, too. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening, everybody.